most suicidal crises, when someone is really acutely suicidal, can be resolved fairly quickly by simply listening, stepping in to fill that relationship piece, and helping them resolve their ambivalence about killing themselves because almost everyone who is contemplating suicide has as many reasons to live as they do reasons to die. And sometimes it doesn't take too much to nudge them in the living direction. It's time for another episode of Valley Health Check, a great resource for you and your family. You can scroll through numerous episodes that are so important and timely and good for you. Of course, Horizon Health, we couldn't do it without these guys. You can always go to myhorizonhealth.org, get details. And uh, as always, Aaron Frank's here to kick things off for this important topic. Yeah, we appreciate you having us back, Kevin. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Today, I brought with me special guest, Dr. Bill Elliott. Dr. Elliott is a licensed clinical psychologist with more than 45 years of behavioral health experience. One of the things that we've been working on at Horizon Health and, and much of the healthcare community has been working on it as well, well beyond our organization, is really growing our um, behavioral health base. Um, we, we know that's a need in the community, in the country, and that's something we've been working on and we've been thrilled to have Dr. Elliot join our team. Well, Dr. Elliot, thank you for being a part of this podcast. We appreciate it. What a great pleasure it is. We're going to tap into uh, your knowledge and your experience, which could be a very tough topic to discuss and talk about, but I think a very important topic, suicide. Um, what made you guys want to talk about this today? Well, that's what I think is super interesting. I worked with doctor to say, hey, we have a platform here and can you help me understand what you feel like would be most valuable to spend our time on? And, and, and doctor brought this topic to our attention. Well, the issue of suicide and, and I'll add to it something called non-suicidal self-injury, which refers to efforts that sometimes people hurt themselves with no intention to die but it serves the purpose of sometimes giving them relief from emotional pain, giving them a sense of control that when they feel out of control in their lives, sometimes it's a desperate plea for attention. Sometimes it's a way to um, get back at people they feel have wronged them. There, There's countless motives for why people hurt themselves. But the important thing to understand is that most people who kill themselves have a prior history of engaging in some kind of self-harm. Now, that could be recklessness, that could be risky behavior, it could be promiscuous sex, it could be substance abuse, but they have, they've trained their brains and their bodies that, you know, pain and discomfort aren't all that bad. And they work themselves up over time to true, to becoming a truly suicidal risk. So I like to help Patients and healthcare professionals understand that uh, just because someone seems to be, and I'll put this in quotation marks, manipulating, the fact is they have just placed themselves at higher risk for true suicide at some point. For example, uh, there's a condition that is fairly popular now in the media called borderline personality disorder. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, there are a number of movies and, and other media platforms that uh, kind of um, emphasize this. But it's a condition where a big 
component is self-injury. And very often, the person with borderline personality disorder becomes the most dreaded patient for an ER nurse, for a mental health professional, uh, for anybody who has to deal with that kind of behavior. But in reality, one out of every 10 of the persons who suffer from that disorder will end up killing themselves. So uh, I just yeah. thought it was important to bring this out and get it out in the open, talk about it, and recognize that once we can get these individuals in treatment, there is a great, great uh, success rate but we've got to have the patience and tolerance to withstand their behavior first. So there's a lot of hurdles that, that go along with this, obviously. I'd never heard suicide, non-suicidal self-injury, but what I noticed here, it has a foundation of, I don't want to say promiscuous, but a, a foundation of, of danger. Of, of Makes me think of adrenaline junkies. It is, and, and, and the, it all has that foundation that leads to, unfortunately, other things, correct? Yes, indeed. And in fact, one of the great uh, suicidologists, which is kind of a specialty within mental health, uh, David Jobes calls it the acquired capacity to engage in lethal self-harm. Now, that's a mouthful. Wow, that is. But what he's really saying there is that most people don't like pain, don't like discomfort, and so that committing suicide is really a rather ambitious undertaking, and it's very hard for people to uh, consider doing something that would put themselves at risk of pain right. and mm -hmm. misery, so one has to work up to it. And that's one of the three conditions that he has kind of for the perfect storm. The other one, the other two being some significant problem in a major relationship. Okay. And, and if we take a look at suicides, both those that come to us in treatment and those we hear about in the media, we'll find that there is a uh, separation, a loss, maybe due to death of a loved one, a sudden breakup. Uh, we see that a lot with adolescent males whose first love leaves them right. and they are devastated. But there's a third component too, and this is, um, this is where a lot of older men are caught, and that is perceived burdensomeness, meaning that the individual no longer feels that he or she has anything to offer, mm -hmm. to feel that he or she has lost their ability to influence, to be effective, to feel competent, and then they, they take it a step further and think, you know what? Other people would be better off if I just weren't around. So when all three of those elements are, are present, you've got the perfect storm. And I, that person is at very high risk. So are you leading me to believe then, doctor, that there is some caution flags that people throw up for us that, that we can um, somehow react to as loved ones? I, I think there are, uh, Aaron, and, and specifically... One of the hardest things for people to do is give honest feedback to each other. Sure. Because it tends to put people on the defensive. They're worrying, they worry about losing friends. But um, in group therapy, when we have group members give feedback to each other, we label it as you are giving 
a gift that we can't put a price tag on, the yeah. gift of open and honest feedback to include some hard-hitting constructive criticism. And whether it is a co-worker, whether it is a family member, mm -hmm. uh, whether it is a teacher and a student, is to have the courage to say, I'm concerned about you because you seem to have lost your way. Uh, with older men, which is the older white men, uh, that is, white men over 65 have remained the highest risk group for suicide forever. And, Interesting. And that, that surprises me. I did not expect that demographic. And, and largely that has to do with, as men age, uh, unlike women, they tend to fail to renew friendships or when a, a friend dies, they don't replace the friend. So their social support system kind of narrows over time. And then particularly with the loss of a spouse, there is nobody there, quite mm -hmm. frankly. Sure. Uh, that, that makes so much sense. Uh, it's sad, but uh, it's a reality. One of the factors that us expanding at Horizon Health, all this behavioral health footprint is very new within the last few months, but we have had our senior care program for a number of years. And one of the things that that program has talked about also in that age group is the loss of independence, you know? And so as you're, as you're losing relationships, you know, then also coping with, I can't do things on my own anymore. Right, right. And, um, you know, how are my kids able to tell me where I get to live? And, and, and those types of things too, that do fall into that age bracket as well. Yes, and in fact, that speaks to that issue of perceived burdensomeness. Sure, yeah. Where I am no good to myself. I'm no good to anybody else. And so what the heck am I doing here? Mm -hmm. And so there you have that second uh, element of that deadly triad. Now we talk suicide and non-suicidal self-injury. Are the same people prone to both? Well, that's a great question. People with certain personality disorders are more susceptible to non-self-injury. Okay. For example, the borderline personality disordered person. Sometimes someone who experiences bipolar disorder, uh, major depressive disorder, individuals will kind of experiment with self-harm as a way to reduce emotional pain because when it's interesting the neuropathways in the brain for physical pain and psychological pain are one and the same so we register the the emotional pain just like we would physical pain but the big thing is that for people who self-injure it gives them a sense of you know what my life is out of control it's a mess but when i cut on myself and see that blood and then see that scar tissue it, it lets me know, you know, I can control one thing, mm -hmm. and that's, wow. that's that. And it's very hard to understand, but there also is a, a biochemical reaction in the brain where there is something akin to an endorphin release that they experience when they cut. And it helps to have a little bit of an understanding of their why, too. I mean, sure. you know, hopefully having an understanding of, of the way it makes them feel gives you a talking point to, you know, help in some way. That's a great point because one of the most important skills for a mental health professional and uh, actually for anybody, frankly, is validation. And validation means that we tell them we get it, we understand from where you're at right now 
and the way you're looking at your life and looking at the world, this behavior makes sense to you. And there is a one of the great psychologists of all time, Marsha Linehan, who is the originator of a, a treatment approach called uh, dialectical behavior therapy, talks about creating a hospitable environment for people within a family, within an employment setting, and certainly within counseling and psychotherapy. And that is so that if we do nothing else, we validate the person's experience so that they then feel like, you know what, this person understands me and I'm going to be more willing to open up and talk about what's going on. Uh, without that validation, uh, individuals sense that, oh my gosh, this person thinks that what I'm doing is weird, crazy, so I'd better hide it. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's what we don't want. We want most suicidal crises when someone is really acutely suicidal can be resolved fairly quickly by simply listening, stepping in to fill that relationship piece and helping them resolve their ambivalence about killing themselves because almost everyone who is contemplating suicide has as many reasons to live as they do reasons to die. And sometimes it doesn't take too much to nudge them in the living direction. I'm very interested in this because COVID has been so devastating for so many people. I mean, it's something a lot of us haven't seen in our lifetime. It has affected so many people. How can you describe these conditions have changed as far as folks just having a rough time post-COVID? Have you noticed a difference? Well, it, I mean, clinically or just anecdotally right. speaking, because COVID is so recent, Right, that right. there's not really a lot of good, reliable information out there that is um, you know, scientific information. Right. But most healthcare professionals uh, report an increase in particularly signs of uh, depression and anxiety. I have found that to be true in my own work. There is a lot of research now coming out that indicates that high school students and middle school students in particular have really suffered as a result of COVID, particularly if they don't have or didn't have the technology to remain in contact mm -hmm. with wow. peers, teachers, and others because although that may not be the ideal uh, way to maintain social supports, it is an effective one. And those students who have um, been able to stay in daily contact with their friends, fellow students, uh, have fared much better with respect to mental health. That's that's very, very interesting because that's something I didn't think about. You know, you know, we're always uh, the first to say you're on your phone too much. But when you lose that link because that demographic, that's how they stay in touch. To me, it, we're just back to another episode where we're talk talking about technology and the double-edged sword that it brings. You yeah. know, it opened a lot of doors during COVID in a lot of really great ways. This, this clearly being one of them. But, you know, as a parent, there's always the... The other side of the technology mm -hmm. concerns too. So, but it is 
wonderful insight to keep in it mind. Is. It I mean, is. You know, you go to grounding nowadays usually has to do with phone privileges, mm -hmm. um, at least among those age groups. And so even being mindful of how isolated we may or may not be making our children inadvertently by using that technology as a discipline component. Right. Something right. to really think about. Also to think about as a loved one, if you notice something like this happening within your family or someone that's very close to you, what can we do to help or what is the appropriate thing? What is the next step for us to do for our loved one? Well, uh, the same thing that, that you, I would recommend to school systems uh, and, and employers, and that is we have to promote help-seeking behavior. We've got to find ways to make it okay to ask for help. Uh, I, uh, for example, um, there was a time uh, in the early development of employee assistance programs where most employees were very reluctant to seek out help for fear of being identified and uh, particularly those who work uh, in the criminal justice system were fearful that seeking help would be a reason, you know, to, to for managers to believe that they weren't able to get the job done. We've made remarkable progress in that way. The stigma around mental health has been significantly uh, reduced. However, we still have a way to go relative to most people don't think twice about seeking medical help, but they do think twice about seeking mental health. And even within a family, um, a lot can be done without getting professional involvement, but there are issues that really go beyond the capability of parents and families to deal with, and seeking professional help can be a literally a lifesaver in some cases. So that would be, that would be the first thing. And then to promote positive social support. Adolescents in particular uh, learn most of what they know about uh, daily life from their peers. They look to their peers, not to their parents anymore for uh, guidance and direction. They also bring to the peer group uh, their own contribution. And in that mix, we can, can legitimize the use of help. And uh, peer groups, um, I love doing uh, groups with adolescents because their impulsiveness sometimes works to our advantage because they're willing to shoot <laughs> from the hip right. and give some pretty hard-hitting feedback. And all you need are two or three kids who are really um, moving their lives in the right direction to influence countless others. So, th so those are a couple of things. I think that um, one of the things that at least would be a question for me is it just is what's going on bad enough? I mean, you know, you talk about all these heavy diagnoses of bipolar disorder and, and borderline personality disorder and all these really heavy hitting things. And when you're somebody or you have a, a loved one who's just somebody who's just a little sadder than they should be, right. you know, how do you know? Or um, I think it can be hard to feel like that merits a phone call to a professional. Yeah, that's a great question. It really speaks to one of the biggest problems in mental health treatment, and that is understanding that a diagnosis is a label. And behind that label is a unique person who, you know, every person with bipolar disorder I've ever worked with shows the disorder a little differently. And what I encourage people to do is don't get hung up on the label. What we're looking at, what are the problems of daily living? at school, at work, in relationships, and are they causing 
significant distress to the individual and or are they causing significant problems for the people in their lives, that's when it's time to pick up the phone. That's what really a disorder means. Everybody has a little bit of everything in the the Bible of mental health, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, <laughs> Volume 5. <laughs> Dot com. <laughs> Otherwise known as DSM-5, and there are hundreds of diagnostic labels in there. But if you look at them, you could pick out any one and say, hey, I do that. That's me a little bit. And right. that's the point, a little bit. Where it's a continuum. It's not, you know, a um, binary thing where you either have it or you don't. But when it reaches the point where you are struggling to meet the challenges of daily life or you're causing havoc for other people, then we've got a problem. And we need a professional who may very well render a diagnosis. But we're not that label. We are more than the label. Very well put. And again, that is um, something that I feel like is palatable into the physical health space. You know, when we talk about any condition, it seems that that's how you know. You know, do you have heartburn? Yes, I have heartburn. Okay, well, a degree of heartburn can be easily managed and dealt with. But now it's to the point where I can't sleep or now it's to the point where I have to sit up. I can't lay down. You know, knowing that um, line in the sand, so to speak, is a common indicator that we use to seek healthcare help in general. I guess we just need to be using that for our mental health as well, a similar barometer. Exactly. And particularly with adolescents where there is so much experimentation with different kinds of behaviors, where brain development is not fully completed, uh, where there are issues with impulse control, emotional regulation. That's all adolescents. But when does it reach the point where it causes significant distress for the individual or others? That's when we want to really get mental health involved and get, in, get them involved early, if at all possible. Dr. Elliott, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, chat with us about, uh, I think, a conversation we need to have more of. And uh, we appreciate you taking the time. Of course, Valley Health Check. We can't thank Horizon Health enough for doing this. Some important information. You can always find them at uh, My Horizon Health org and always check back to our podcast page for timely important information with valley health check aaron doctor thank you so much thanks kevin thank you